Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from JFK, made in 1991. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi, everyone, and I'm so glad you have joined me for this episode. When people talk about the score to Oliver Stone's JFK, the discussion tends to lean more toward the story of the composition than the actual music. It is an interesting backstory, but I would argue that the finished product, as used in the film, deserves to be talked about just as much. And joining me to talk about the score is Brian Martell. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thanks, Jeff. It's a, it's a great honor to be back on the baton with you, this time discussing not just a great film, but, but a score that I rank definitely in my top 10 Williams scores. Yeah, I'd never actually put an actual rank to JFK in terms of its place on a list of great John Williams scores, but I think it might be in the top 10 for me or very close to it. So those of you who may remember Brian will remember that he's back for his second time co-hosting with me. We talked about the score to 1974's The Iger Sanction, and now we're back for another thriller, also incidentally about people plotting an assassination. But of course, this one has real-world implications since it deals with the real story of a New Orleans district attorney who tried to uncover the truth behind the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Yeah, I first saw the movie at an advanced screening in early December 1991, and I liked it so much, I think I saw it three to five more times in the theater, and of course, grabbed it on home uh, video as soon as it came out, and uh, watched it numerous times, and including, for the first time in about a decade, uh, recently to prepare for this episode. I just remember being completely blown away by the film, especially its technical skill, the the editing and cinematography were just so revolutionary at the time. Both, incidentally, would win Oscars at that year's ceremony. The acting was was just solid. With uh, I remember and reminded watching the film again, just so many familiar place, faces playing not just the big roles, but small roles as well. It, it was all in all just a tour to force of filmmaking. And of course, the music in the film ha had an amazing impression on me. It was a score that just seemed to come out of nowhere if you were a Williams fan in 91. Specifically, the music Williams wrote for the conspiratorial parts of the film. They were something completely new, even though I realize uh, people listening to the pod by now will find it familiar because it spawned copycats galore. And Williams himself has returned to some of those ideas and other scores. I think many listeners today will likely find themselves flashing to Jurassic Park when they hear the conspiracy music later today. However, watching the film today, and I realize 29 years later, time flies when you're living life, the technical aspects are much less impactful because of the film's impact. They've been reused over and over again so many times since. But the music is still strong. But what struck me most this time around were the themes of demanding truth from power, and that you can fight City Hall. And those themes are just as poignant, if not more poignant, today. So I think it's a slam dunk to conclude that what was true in 1991 is still true today. Oliver Stone made a really, really great film. He did. And looking back on it, Brian, I don't think this story could have been told by anyone other than Oliver Stone, who, as you remember, had a history of making films that shook up the status quo, and that even goes back to Midnight Express in 1978. Stone said he was intrigued by the book written by Jim Garrison, who was the district attorney who tried to fill in the gaps of that famous Warren report that said Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman. That led Stone down a big rabbit hole, and when he emerged, he fashioned a screenplay that he called a, quote, countermyth to the Warren report. Yeah, <laughs> have to admit, I, I fell down that same rabbit hole after seeing the film in 1991. Man, I, I read every book I could find about the Kennedy assassination. And as I went further down that hole, I started to realize that the deeper you went, the more extreme and uh, out there the conspiracy theories became, many ultimately just collapsing under their own weight. Then uh, later in the 90s, when Gerald Posner first hit the airwaves, uh, pushing his book Case Closed, uh, which he started as being in, he was interested apparently in what he saw in JFK and found Lee Harvey Oswald interesting, and he wanted to research Oswald's background and how he fit into the so-called conspiracy, and he wound up writing the book and going, Oswald acted alone, lone gunman, supporting the 
Warren report in the official story. So, of course, as he's saying this, selling his book, when I'm in the midst of conspiracy fever, I hate this guy. What a jerk. What a what a just bad person. Because, of course, he's saying what I want to believe isn't true. So, bastard, I'm not going to read your book. I bought it, but, of course, I never read it. Till a couple <laughs> of years later, I, I finally did read it, and uh, it brought me out of the rabbit hole, because after reading it, I recommend it to people. It's an entertaining and good read, but I had to conclude like he did. Oswald was a lone gunman. He... He got off a few lucky shots from that sixth-floor window. And as I say that, I, I feel the need to apologize for using the term lucky shots, but, but that describes what he got off from that sixth-floor window, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's the exact opposite of what Oliver Stone would want you to believe. So after you watched this film just very recently, do you still hold on to that lone gunman theory? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do respect that literally Oliver Stone gets every conspiracy theory into that movie. It's amazing. But for me, Oswald acting alone, it's the best Occam's razor answer to the riddles that are posed by that day. I do believe there was a cover-up involved in the assassination, or, or as I think Oliver Stone would prefer us to say, the murder of John F. Kennedy. And the fact, it's pretty clear, Oswald was on the radar of the Secret Service, the FBI, the CIA, and the Dallas Police Force, but the organizations didn't share intel back then, and each individual looked at this guy as just your average nut bar, no real threat offered, and I think once the president had been shot, how did they find Oswald so quickly? Um, he was on their list of usual suspects, and when the guy you're after actually winds up shooting a cop, you narrow the suspects down pretty quick. Finding him that fast, when you think about it, isn't really that surprising. And while they worked to find Oswald and bring him to justice, you better believe they were trying to cover up the fact that they kind of knew about this guy in advance. And the president being murdered, you probably don't want to add to the shock of the American people that, oh, and we knew about this guy all along. So you had to kind of cover that up. Hence, you have the evidence of a cover-up because there was, and that led to the conspiracy theories, and there you go. Anyway, at least that's my opinion. But I do think it's a testament to Oliver Stone's integrity uh, the film itself, and Gary Oldman's great performance of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, because when you watch the film, the depiction of Oswald, you can read it either way, killer or patsy, whichever you prefer. Yeah, Gary Oldman is so good in this that I don't really see Gary Oldman. I see Lee Harvey Oswald, and that's what a great actor tries to do. They don't make you see that you're looking at the actor. So I want to talk about the making of this movie, and... Obviously, as we said, John Williams has is coming back to working with Oliver Stone two years after Born on the Fourth of July. And when he was asked to do it, Williams immediately said yes. And he was 31 years old when Kennedy was shot. And naturally, he remembered the emotions of hearing the news. And this is what he said in an interview for the Boston Globe. Quote, it was my first recollection as an adult of weeping. I was in my 30s and I hadn't cried in decades. This is a very resonant subject for people of my generation, and that's why I welcomed the opportunity to participate in this film, end quote. And as excited as Williams was to join the project, he had a, he had a bit of a problem. You see, JFK was scheduled to be released in theaters in December 1991. The same month, a certain film by Steven Spielberg entitled Hook was also going to make its debut. And uh, both projects are going to be in post-production around the same time. And so if John Williams wants to be involved in both films, he's got to find a way to kind of make that puzzle work. Now, Spielberg had dropped the idea of making Hook into a musical. Personally, I believe that's a good thing, but you never know. Still, there was going to be a lot, and I mean a lot of music required for that film. And Williams was going to need pretty much the entire spring of 1991 to work on that. So... In order to make sure he could deliver a quality score for both directors, Williams did something I, I'm not sure if he'd done before. He decided to write some music for Stone even before filming began. It would then be Stone's task, working alongside uh, music editor Ken Wanberg, to use the music in the best way possible. Interestingly enough, I found it's very much like the relationship uh, Inel Morricone and Sergio Leone had in the uh, Man With No Name trilogy and other films in the early 60s. Yeah, and that was one of the great composer-director relationships of all time. And you mentioned that you didn't think that Williams had ever done this before, and it's true. He never had to write all pretty much the entire score before 
filming began. You'll remember he had to write that five-note theme for Close Encounters of the Third Kind before filming because it was so woven into the script. But this was the first time where he pretty much just had to write everything, record everything, and hand it over without seeing a frame of film. It was daring and kind of a little bit scary for him, I'm sure. Uh, But again, he had to do it. And he had to write this music very early in order to give himself time to devote to Hook and get as much of that music finished before not only working on Hook, but also to do his summer stint with the Boston Pops. Now, the recording dates of JFK's score have been hard to find, so it's hard to tell how early he had to hand in the six musical pieces he composed pre-filming. And I kind of recall reading that before he started even writing One Note of Music, Williams also took a trip to Dallas and spent some time in Dealey Plaza, where Kennedy was shot. And obviously, he was there to get some inspiration, and I think you'll really hear it in the score. In that Boston Globe article that I had talked about earlier with writer Richard Dyer, Dyer listed five musical pieces that Williams wrote and recorded in early 91. Now, there was actually a sixth composition that they either forgot about or just blended in with another theme because two of them sound similar. I'm not really sure. So let's get started talking about the themes that are used in the film. And the first one is kind of the main theme, and it plays over the prologue of the film. And at first, I thought it was a tribute to the late president, but that's an entirely separate piece of music that we're going to talk about later. I feel this one we're about to play is an overall theme for the film, not tied to any particular person. It has two layers to it. The first is that rat-a-tat snare drum that I think is meant to underline the military presence throughout the film that happens in the discussions of the Cuban Missile Crisis that plagued John F. Kennedy's presidency, as well as the Vietnam War, and Garrison's belief that the U.S. military had a hand in the assassination. And the second layer is a more stately-themed introduced to us on the trumpet. And that trumpet is played by none other than Tim Morrison, who gave us a haunting rendition of the main theme in Born on the Fourth of July. But unlike Born on the Fourth of July, Morrison's trumpet isn't a major part of the score, and is heard only in this prologue and in the end credits, which is kind of a shame. Now after Morrison's trumpet in this prologue, the main theme goes into the strings for another 40 seconds, which sets up the incidents that lead into Kennedy's assassination. I think Williams knew what Stone was going for in regards to the flashbacks to Oswald and all the people supposedly planning the assassination, especially the discussion of the Cuban Missile Crisis and its aftermath that led many Americans to believe that Kennedy was a communist. 
So Williams conveyed the feeling of those flashbacks with another theme that used organic and synthesized percussion knocking away and getting under your skin just enough to create that sense of deceit. Now, this has been a long time coming because not since images has Williams put so much weight into the percussion on a film. And later in there are the brass instruments playing atonal chords just to make us feel even more unsettled. You can definitely hear the Latin flavor in that conspirator's theme. So I think you're right, Jeff. There's a little bit of a, the Cuban Missile Crisis and angle there. I think Williams picked that up from reading the script. Now, I mentioned earlier, hearing this theme for the first time was a big revelation in the score. Yeah, you're right. It does add a sense of danger and dread and mystery. But I'd just like to uh, 
put just how revolutionary this sounded at the time into context, because JFK came out in December 91, which is a good seven years before Filmscore Monthly released their first expanded score, and that started the slight of soundtracks uh, releases we just take for granted today from not the now-defunct Filmscore Monthly, but Entrada, La La Land, the Varese CD Club, and all the other labels. So it might be hard for people to believe that a comprehensive collection of Williamson music on record and CD in late 1991 would probably have been something similar to what I had, about 33 albums and CDs in total. My collection began with the original vinyl of Fiddler on the Roof, and I think when, by the time I went to see the screening for JFK, I just bought the soundtrack for Hook. So a total of 33 releases, and I did some research and realized I was seven short of having a complete Williams catalog in 1991 would have been six vinyls out of print and a CD. Otherwise, I had everything available. So that was your complete Williams collection when JFK hit the screen. And so, in 1991, Williams fans knew what John Williams sounded like. You had that expected full-bodied romantic orchestral sound that dominated the scores from Star Wars to Temple of Doom. You had that pre-Star Wars sound we referred to a little bit when we talked in the Agra Sanction, that Mancini-esque Baroque pop-funk sound of the pre-70s. And then I think you touched it when you talked about Accidental Tours, kind of that kinder and gentler sound that tended to dominate the scores from the river on. So that's what William sounded like. That's what you expected. So when this film began, oh, the rat-a-tat-tat of the snare drums, they were sharp, but that beautiful sort of JFK theme, that's what William sounded like. And then when the conspirators came on, you were like, what is this? I have never heard this from my guy before. It was just so exciting to have an artist that you respected and loved just give you something completely different. It was just so exciting at the time. Yeah, I think that's what we love about him. You never know what you're going to get when you come out, when you sit down to watch a film or, or hear it maybe for the first time on CD. Unlike other composers, you may think, oh yeah, we know what this is going to sound like. I don't think anybody really expected anything like the conspirators thing for, from John Williams, and that's what makes the score even more exciting to hear in the CD and on film. So of all the themes in the film, the Conspirators theme is the one I think has made the biggest impression, not just on John Williams, but on his peers. This theme so accurately depicted the emotion of hatching a sinister plan that composers would use this music for such scenes a lot after JFK. And one that really sticks out for me comes from John Ottman's music for The Usual Suspects when the gang is planning this major jewel heist in New York City. Yep, definitely there. I think James Horner also riffed on it in his score to Sneakers the following year. And let's be honest, you can definitely hear that main JFK theme being referenced in his great score to Apollo 13 later that decade as well. And as I said before, Williams leaned on this theme a couple more times, once in Jurassic Park and again in Nixon. 
And I'm going to talk about those cues when I get to those episodes later in this podcast, so keep this in mind. Frank Lehman, a music professor at Tufts University, put together a compilation of other music cues that were inspired by the Conspirators theme on his YouTube channel. I urge you to check it out. It's Frank Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N. Uh, I'm going to do that. That sounds interesting. And there's a second theme in the film associated with the assassination and the conspiracy, and it's developed on the soundtrack through the cues Garrison's Obsession and the Motorcade. Now, when we looked at the Agger Sanction, I mentioned that I thought I heard these particular cues foreshadowed in the murder sequences from that score, specifically the last minute of microfilm killing and the middle of Up the Drain Pipe. Now, these musical ideas are further developed in JFK, but I think the seeds were there back in 1974. Now, not as revolutionary to the ear as the conspiracy music at the time, still, they were good cues, and the menacing, undulating, and ultimately very dramatic Garrison's Obsession cue encapsulates how Williams will emotionally underscore Garrison's relentless pursuit of truth throughout the film, and of course the climactic presentation of the events in Dealey Plaza in the trial sequence that will form the film's climax. Going back to the Agger Sanction, I urge listeners to note the appearance of the Agger Sanction's instrument of choice, the harpsichord, very early in the queue. So one of my favorite scenes in the film is presented only in Oliver Stone's director's cut. It wasn't played in theaters. It only came out on DVD, I think, in late 99 or probably early 2000. And it uses the obsession theme very well to heighten the tension. It comes when Jim is on his way back to New Orleans after appearing on a talk show in New York City, I think. And one of his former employees, Bill Broussard, who walked out on the investigation just a few scenes back, shows up to tell Jim that there's a plot to kill him. Now, Jim is in a bathroom stall at the airport when he figures out there actually might be a hit put out on him because there are some people congregating around his stall. And once he leaves the bathroom unharmed, he sees his former employee just standing at a magazine stand looking very suspicious. And I love, I love, love, love the deep piano hits right at that moment. So as great as all of this music has been so far, I feel that the music Williams wrote for Jim Garrison's play-by-play of the assassination is the best of his score. Now, though we see the video of the assassination a few times throughout the film, this piece of music that Williams wrote, called The Motorcade, doesn't show up until the final act of the film during the actual trial. 
The obsession theme plays as we see the shooters get into position, and then as the motorcade arrives at Dealey Plaza, we get the main theme's drum cadence. And as Garrison talks about the effects of each of these six shots, he believes that were fired that day with footage of the Abraham Zapruder film playing for us and the people in the courtroom. Williams offers some frenetic strings followed by the drum cadence and horn rendition of the main theme after the first shot. Notice those bagpipes that are going to be playing too, which suggests Kennedy's Irish ancestry. Brass gets crazy after shot number four hits John Connolly in the president's car. And we get the fatal shot that killed Kennedy, supposedly not from the book depository, and the flute hits on that moment. Stone gives us the kill shot a couple more times, and the music notes accentuate each time the rifle fires, and we see that kind of gruesome footage of John F. Kennedy's kind of head exploding. And then there's that famous back and to the left, repeated three times without music. Yeah, it might be interesting for some to know that in 1991, this was the first time many were able to see the actual footage of the assassination as shot by Zapruder and Dealey Plaza. So if you watch the film, it's not special effects or CGI folks, that's exactly what Mr. Supruto shot that day. And yes, uh, people say it was enhanced. No, they cleaned up the footage in the lab for clarity for the big screen presentation. But you're watching what happened. You're actually watching John F. Kennedy die in front of you. Music underscoring that killing shot just would have distracted from Stone's intent. When you think about it, the silence and... Costner's just very monotone voice saying back and to the left those three times in the silence does the trick quite effectively. And if you talk to people back in the day, for many, this was the moment they remembered. It was the most shocking and the most gruesome part of the film when you realized you actually saw President Kennedy murdered and die right in front of you on the screen. Yeah, even all these years later and after seeing the film, I think five or six times now, it's still... Very hard to watch, especially, I think, because the music goes away, you don't have anything to kind of take you out of that moment. You, don't, you can't just listen to the music and, and kind of escape. You have to watch it, and there's no looking away. And you can even see the reactions of the people on the film. They're a little disgusted by it, so I think that even adds to it. Since Williams wrote and recorded this music before portions of the scene were shot and edited together, you have to believe that Oliver Stone and his staff edited that scene together using the music to help the flow and editing the film to create some musical sync points really makes it more powerful, Brian. It feels like the music was written to match the images, not the other way around, which is what actually happened. Yeah, though in my research, I... There was talk that Williams did go down and visit uh, the set and Oliver Stone while they were shooting New Orleans, and at that time he apparently saw about an hour of roughly edited footage, and seeing that, he wanted to go back in the studio and record some more music, and Stone ultimately edited the image to that music. And I'm wondering, you mentioned the sixth piece of music that seems unknown. I wonder if that's that extra piece of music he wrote, and I wonder if perhaps this sequence was the one he wanted to score. 
Well, I'm, again, we don't know, but I really do believe that uh, the motorcade was written beforehand and there was just some genius editing done to really kind of match it. Going back to E.T., when you know Steven Spielberg couldn't get the editing to match the music that John Williams wrote for that finale bike chase, he Oliver Stone, I think, said, okay, we've, we've got to kind of make this work. And I think he just worked with the music editor and said, okay, how is this going to work to make all of those accentuated musical points work with each of those shots so it was probably very hard to edit but um, I think most of what John Williams saw um, during that time he went to New Orleans was scenes that were going to use music already recorded and I think he might have just given notes about how the music should be used because I just don't think he had a lot of time to devote to writing a lot of new music with Hook also on his plate. No, that, that, that's true. Again, it's one of those things, maybe if uh, they ever do another release, the notes can tell us. But regardless, the music works so well in this film, both John Williams' contribution and the source music. And I think it's worth pointing out that the source music works so marvelous, marvelously in this film. Um, Williams' score and the source music fitting in highlights something I, I think that really needs to be talked about and someone who needs to be given due credit, and that's music editor Ken Wanberg, because he was trusted by Williams to make this pre-recorded music and everything just flow organically into the final edit of the film, since, of course, Williams was, as you say, busy working with Hook during the post-production of JFK. And I think there was so much work that Wanberg could do this alone. And he had an assistant with him named Fabian Rowley, who had been just a film editor for many years. But on JFK, she was Wanberg's assistant editor. And interestingly, this would be her one and only credit as music editor on a film. But the two did a wonderful job, as you said. I, it's very seamless. Kudos to both of them. Fantastic. I say the, 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 the editing of the music and sound in this film is like the cinematography and film editing is just going to jump out at you. And just the fantastic job they did leads to the rumor, and, and I stress here because people listen to it, and you don't want to make people think you're telling them exactly what's going to happen, but there's a rumor going around about an expected expanded commercial release of the JFK score. Uh, it's been waited for by fans like myself for a long time because it will, again, according to rumor, contain the suites that Williams composed in advance for the film, as well as the sort of holy grail, an edit of the scores presented in film. And fans have been waiting for this since the film came out. And uh, this might be the reason for a delay of this rumored release, because putting together a film edit of this score is going to be a Herculean effort, because if he wrote five little suites, one scene might have 10 seconds of each suite cut in with micro edits and quick cuts. And some of the cuts are hidden in sound effects. Like it is just a super anal retentive effort to uh, copy that. Because I think with the exception of the death of David Ferry sequence, none of the compositions Williams wrote played in the film as he recorded them. So rumor in hand, let's hope one, it's actually coming Two. uh, someone is working to do the film edit and three it'll be out pretty soon yeah that would be great i would love to hear that i'd love to i'd love to hear the story behind just making that cd because as you said it's not easy to piece all those together so let's go back to the music for the motorcade that appears on the only soundtrack release that's currently available right now there's more to that composition to than what we heard in the trial and it plays during the courtroom playback of the aftermath of the assassination leading up to Oswald's arrest. Now, there's a driving rhythm that Williams wrote in this piece, which I think complements Oswald's run from the police.
and Williams wrote a great crescendo run for the brass instruments, which was used in the moment Oswald shoots the Dallas police officer Tippett. So with the exception of the main theme, we've heard a lot of music today that's very atonal in nature. Written that way, I think you agree, Jeff, to highlight the unsettling nature of what's being presented on film and the conspiracies that Stone is throwing at us. However, John Williams wasn't going to leave a project like this without providing us something to honor the late President Kennedy with. And it's a very somber piece that first gets played when uh, Kevin Costner's character Jim Garrison meets Donald Sutherland's mysterious government agent, X, and he describes to Costner the inner workings of Black Ops, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the government's reaction to the assassination. But the music really comes to the foreground when Garrison visits the memorial to John Kennedy in the Arlington Cemetery. And that's great music, but the most beautiful part of this composition comes in the end credits. It's absolutely gorgeous. Now, those of you who have listened to the episode I did on images will remember the discussion I had about picking my favorite John Williams composition that uses only string instruments, including Blood Moon from Images. But right now, Arlington is at the top of the list, but that's probably only because I'm discussing it right now. And when I get to discussing A Prayer for Peace in Munich, which borrows heavily from Arlington, I might count that as my favorite. So they kind of rotate around. It's pretty much my favorite ones, the one I'm listening to at the moment. They're also very, very good in different ways. And Arlington is a wonderful, wonderful requiem for President Kennedy. And if it had been composed in 1963, it would have been a great piece to play at his funeral. So I want to share this quick story with you. 
I was in Dallas a couple of years ago, and I was staying at a hotel just a few blocks from Dealey Plaza. It was my second time being in Dealey Plaza, but my first time since being a John Williams fan and knowing much about the score to JFK. So with my iPod in my hand and standing right there on the grassy knoll, I played Arlington, and it gave me chills. There are marks on the road where Kennedy was shot, where each bullet hit him. And it really does take you back in 1963. Yeah, that would be quite emotional. And I have to say, Williams' music for the Oliver Stone films is very emotionally strong. I have to admit, I tear up whenever I hear the end credits to Born on the Fourth of July, just the, the melancholy that just is imbued in that piece of music. And the JFK theme itself, it has a wistful, dreamlike quality, but a bit of melancholy in there as well, like it's a Requiem for Camelot. Then you add the tragedy that's just being expressed, squeezing out through the strings in the Arlington queue. And then what's going to come up in Nixon? It's it's like William scores combined from the Oliver Stone films to form a symphonic Requiem for the American Dream, which is also another theme, especially of those three Oliver Stone films. In fact, it's actually outlined in Garrison's climactic speech at the climax of JFK, and you actually see it play out in in uh, Tom Cruise's character in Born on the Fourth of July and in the biographical aspect of Nixon's life in Nixon. I really think John Williams could adapt these scores into a really, really emotional and powerful concert piece. Just the way you describe it, I think it would make for a very good concert piece, you know, a, a 12, 13-minute piece that would really bring everybody to tears. It, it would not fail to get everybody emotionally swept away in it. Even those who weren't alive in 63, like me, you really feel what is trying to be said in that music. So th- as I said, there was that sixth composition that wasn't mentioned in the Richard Dyer article, but uh, this is another piece of music that I believe Williams wrote before seeing a frame of film of JFK, and it's called The Witnesses. Now, as the title suggests, It was probably supposed to be used for any of the scenes featuring people who were on the grassy knoll as the shots were fired. And there's a five-minute sequence in the film when Jim Garrison interviews several people who witnessed various sketchy moments the day of the assassination. But instead of using the music from the witnesses, Stone picked some music from the motorcade cue and only one tiny bit from the witnesses' composition. About four minutes of that sequence runs completely without music. Now, this music should have been used also in the courtroom scene when Jim is discussing at great length all the witnesses in Dealey Plaza, but we get the conspirators theme instead. Its most prominent moment in the film comes when Jack Lemmon's character talks about a plan to invade Cuba using exiled Cubans, and that lasts only about a minute.
So if you own the soundtrack to JFK and you like The Witnesses, unfortunately, it doesn't get much play in the film. So it actually becomes one of those soundtrack only cues that um, you can kind of hold on to. So as Brian mentioned earlier, Williams went to New Orleans during a little break in his schedule to see Stone filming JFK. And the two talked about the music that Williams turned in. And I think it was there that Williams got to see a big scene that Oliver Stone had put together, which is the scene where David Ferry dies in his home. And he had some time to put together an ethereal cue that seems to come almost completely from synthesizers, including the male and female voices wafting through. It feels like the music was indeed written for this scene, since the percussion stingers throughout highlight a notable moment in the scene or during a flashback that imagines that David Ferry was murdered. And as you said, Brian, this is the one cue on the soundtrack that plays completely uninterrupted and unedited, so you just continually have to believe that it was written for this scene. And Oliver Stone and Ken Womberg also decided to use this music a little earlier in the film during a key discussion of Oswald's time in Russia. Yeah, this was another one of the cues that, that really stood out for me at the time, and I, I still love today. I, I wonder if maybe this is the sequence Williams saw in New Orleans and uh, scored. We'll never know. But I do want to mention, I mentioned the acting was strong. I think you got to give kudos to Joe Pesci. He's just so wonderful in his portrayal of this strange, complex, funny, and surprisingly sympathetic at his death little man. Uh, the cue perfectly, as you say, sets the mood when they come across his body and discuss the ramifications. And I actually think, as, as strange as it is, there's an aspect to it that really helps build this feeling of sympathy you feel at David Ferry's spoiler alert death. Yeah, well, spoiler alert by now, we've already talked about it, no problem. Uh, but it's really interesting also to think that I think this was the film that Joe Pesci did right after Home Alone. So try to imagine coming off being a bumbling comedic burglar and being this wild and crazy conspiracy theorist who wants to kill John F. Kennedy. I mean, it's an amazing turnaround. 
All right. So though the film JFK was met with a lot of criticism, I mean a lot, even before anyone saw a frame of the film, the movie did really well at the box office, earning more than $200 million worldwide. And that's a lot for a three-hour film. And it definitely did hurt that running time hurt how many times it could run each day in the theaters, not to mention that the subject matter was highly divisive and still was divisive months after the film was out. But I think Roger Ebert's review that was very positive, I think he even ranked his his best film of the year, that certainly had to help. Yes, it did. And another interesting point, uh, the great newsman, Walter Cronkite, eviscerated Roger Ebert for positively reviewing JFK. Cronkite felt the film was nothing but a bunch of offensive lies. Uh, To many, the idea that the government assassinated the president was quite offensive. However, the film had a huge impact. And we actually saw the result of that impact in early 2017. In about the middle of 1992, due to the influence of JFK, Congress passed a law that would see the release of many previously declassified files regarding the Kennedy assassination, and uh, President Trump released uh, most of them in early 2017. The showman that he is, of course, he had to hold some back for ratings, but uh, all that was due to JFK. A lot of people said because it was so divisive that it wouldn't get a lot of recognition at the Academy Awards, but it did. It got eight nominations, including Best Picture, in February 92. Now, William Score was notably one of those nominees, which I think, Brian, was not just a recognition of the music, but a recognition of Wanberg's work in making it all work so seamlessly. Absolutely. So, Williams didn't win that year, and I don't think he even thought he could beat Alan Minkin's score to the fantastic film and score to Beauty and the Beast. Um, Alan Minkin, as we know, as we talked about in, in Born on the Fourth of July and Indiana Jones' The Last Crusade, it was the reason why the Disney renaissance was happening. And with Beauty and the Beast, his musical was why that film was so popular during the holiday season of 91, which it even kept JFK and Hook from any chance of winning at the box office. Yeah, I wonder how many more Oscars Williams might have picked up and other composers as well if the Academy had decided to separate the musical scores from orchestral scores earlier in the 90s than they ultimately did. They ultimately separated them because Mencken would just always win. They decided to add some drama. But I just wonder how many more Oscars Williams might have picked up if they'd done that sooner. If we can go back into a time machine and ask the Academy to separate them out, then we could... We could probably no, but it's one of those things you just think what if john williams could have eight oscars by now (laughs) so people have said that the soundtrack release for jfk doesn't present williams score in a great light of the 18 tracks that are on there only 11 of them are john williams compositions now brian you did talk about all the great source music and i think that's what compiles the rest of the soundtrack but it's very uneven because it's like three Williams cues and then a source, some source music, and then another Williams cue and source music. It kind of is uneven. It's very uneven. It's unlike what happened with Born on the Fourth of July, where it was all Williams scores and then all the source music. So I think that would have worked a lot better to help the flow of the score work a little bit better. But um, I kind of understand. I think there's even a degree of it being kind of almost in chronological order, um, at least in terms of the source music. But um, it just didn't work out very well, and it didn't go over well with Grammy voters because the soundtrack to JFK didn't get nominated, which was kind of surprising, again, given the pedigree of the film. And another thing is that despite JFK's success at the Golden Globes, where Oliver Stone won a uh, Golden Globe for directing, the score wasn't nominated for a Golden Globe, which, again, kind of surprised me. Yeah, but I don't know how much that has to do with the soundtrack release. I I wonder if the dissatisfaction has to do with two things. One, the fact that it doesn't really present what you hear in the movie, for reasons we've discussed. And I wonder how much of the dissatisfaction today is colored by all those wonderful archival expanded releases of Williams' music we've had in the intervening decades. But again, interesting for me, maybe not for anyone else, but for me, I love the music, I wanted to buy the soundtrack, and the soundtrack was not released in record stores in Calgary. I had to special order mine in at my now, unfortunately, defunct corner music store. But I have to say, I think it's a fine presentation of the score, not just Williams' work, but that well-placed source music as well. I think I agree with you, it's broken up, because it does try to give you a musical journey through the movie, um, 
again, I would prefer an expanded release. I really hope it comes, but until then, I, I would disagree. I think the CD works just fine. I don't think the Academy and Golden Globe vote based on a soundtrack CD. I think they vote based on what they see on the screen. Yeah, you may be right. 91 was very busy, as we've talked about. Um, he had to f- write the score to JFK very early because he had to work on Hook. And so he wrote the music for JFK in the spring. Then he went off to Boston to conduct his 12th season, 12 seasons at the Boston Pops that summer. And then he spent the entire fall season writing and recording the score for Hook. And then he had promised to conduct a few concerts that Christmas with the Boston Pops. (laughs) Wow, that's impressive. Busy man. Yeah, he was very busy. I think it was actually one of his lighter years even. Uh, So the day that JFK opened in theaters on December 20th, Williams made news not because of his riveting score, but because of a stunning announcement that he was going to step down as conductor of the Boston Pops after the 1993 season. So here's what he said in another Boston Globe article about resigning from the symphony. Quote, I have been thinking very seriously about how I want to spend my time. I never thought I would become a professional conductor. Composing has always been my first love. For the last 11 years, I have been carrying on two simultaneous careers, which has been both gratifying and rewarding. I am as keen about the pops as I ever was, but now I want to work less, both as a conductor and as a composer for films. I want to take the time to write some concert music, to travel less, and read, walk, and spend time with my grandchildren. I have three grandchildren now, one of them already nine, and I am closer to my own children now that they are in their 30s than I was when they were growing up. Between Hook, JFK, and Pop's responsibilities, I have not had a day off since early in the summer, and that made me crazy. I missed being around the youngsters more. So, there you have it. I think I speak for you and a bunch of Williams uh, fans that I'm grateful he did decide to score a few films every now and then since. Shortly after that Christmas Pop's concert in which he announced his resignation, Williams met with director Ron Howard to watch a film that would tell the story of Irish immigrants with Tom Cruise starring with his new wife, Nicole Kidman. So despite what he said about being worn out from all the work he put in during 91, Williams seemed excited to dive right into the next project. Yeah, and I look forward to your look at that next project, far and away on your next episode. A great score and interesting, we talked about releases as we record this, it's just been announced they're going to put out an expanded release of Far and Away, so... Let's hope JFK might not be too far behind. Yeah, I don't think there are many left. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, Jeff, I just want to thank you so, so much for having me back. I I know just as a guy that likes Williams like you, I I probably don't have the the, the sort of cred that some of your other guests have had with being actual musicians and people who've got to work and play with John Williams. But as a Williams fan who just likes his music and the movies that he scores, it's it's just so much fun sitting down, chatting with you about John Williams and his music. And it's even more fun listening to your journey through his scores on the baton. Yeah, it's been great having you, Brian. And uh, we've talked about two great scores, um, very kind of different on the popularity scale, but um, both of them very, very wonderful scores. So I'm very thankful to everyone who has been taking the time to listen to all of these episodes. And um, I want you to send me your comments about the show to jeffswim at AOL.com. And please post a review on the show on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help boost the show's rankings. And I'll be honest, they give me a bit of a boost as we continue on this second half of the journey. Until next time, the baton is down.